Good afternoon and welcome to this archive edition of Midday. I'm Tom Hall. Today, we'll revisit a conversation I had in November with Brandy Collins-Dexter, a keen observer of politics, race, and the cultural landscape. Historically, voter turnout in American elections is horrible, and turnout in midterm elections is particularly lousy. But the midterms in 2018 set records for turnout, and in some states, turnout in this year's midterms rivaled the historic participation of four years ago. Does high turnout favor Democrats? Well, there's conflicting data about that. It does appear to have been the case in the runoff election between Senator Raphael Warnock and Herschel Walker in Georgia, a race in which Senator Warnock prevailed by nearly 100,000 votes. Concerns that Democrats will generally benefit from high turnout elections is why so many GOP-dominated state legislatures have passed so many laws that target people of color and restrict access to the polls. Brandy Collins-Dexter's book takes a new look at the relationship between black voters and the Democratic Party, an alliance that began during the civil rights movement of the mid-20th century. She argues that there are many reasons that old assumptions about that relationship need to be re-examined. Brandy Collins-Dexter is the former senior campaign director at Color of Change, a 7 million member social justice organization. She's currently a visiting fellow at the Harvard Kennedy School's Shorenstein Center on Media, Politics, and Public Policy. Her book is a provocative and persuasive collection of essays called Black Skinhead, Reflections on Blackness and Our Political Future. Brandy Collins-Dexter was raised in Chicago. After several years in Oakland, California, she now lives in Baltimore. She joined us on Zoom from Dublin, Ireland. We spoke six days before the November election. Brandy, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me. Thanks for being had. Um, are, you in, <laughs> are you in Dublin for uh, business or pleasure? Yes, I'm actually here for a um, conference on Internet studies um, for my role at Harvard. I'm actually associate director of research there now. So, yeah, Great. just touched down this morning. Oh, worker trip. Well, oh, and so jet lagged and all. Well, I very, very much appreciate um, your time and very much enjoyed your book. Let's begin with a definition. I think most folks can conjure uh, an image of a white skinhead. Um, but when you talk about black skinheads, right at the top of the book, you define it uh, in, in three dimensions. Uh, it has to do with disillusionment, uh, voting history, and uh, uh, a cultural identity. Um, how do you explain what a black skinhead is? Yes. I mean, so there's a couple of aspects to it. So one, um, it, the term skinhead is actually drawn from like the UK. It's one of the first multicultural um, subcultures in the UK post-World War II. And so after the kind of like bombing of, of London and a number of other places, there was a need for labor and more workers. And so England brought in different folks from colonized countries like Jamaica, Trinidad, India, and others. And they found themselves in Brixton, um, part of this like working class. Uh, you had a lot of youth that were part of this working class multicultural subculture. And um, they galvanized around music, around politics and around disillusionment. And so for me, you know, one of the questions in writing this book is like, 
what we saw with that subculture, which is this like uh, unified working class subculture that was then divided by racial dynamics as economic austerity politics kicked into gear. What would that mean in the in the U.S. as we see like more economic decline, more people feeling like um, believing a sort of zero sum narrative, which is that if other groups gain, they will lose. How does that kind of create a nation of skinheads? And particularly, how is that happening with black people in this country? And when you talk about um, your aspiration for the book to get to the heart of black political identity. You said that the voices of black Trump supporters loomed larger than most. Um, Talk about uh, what you found when it came to uh, folks uh, on the right side of the spectrum in the black community, and particularly um, the, the impetus for the book, which appears to have something to do with Kanye West. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think... So, I mean, there's a couple of parts to this, right? Like, one thing that I was really interested in was um, how Black people felt around the Democratic Party, and particularly for voters under the age of 30, um, or even I would go as far as to say 45, uh, do they feel like, you know, decades and generations of voting for the Democratic Party almost exclusively at these huge numbers were kind of paying off for us. And what I found is that um, most Black voters actually, um, especially younger Black voters, loom more left. So we are actually seeing a lot of different breaks towards looking at third-party options, galvanizing around, um, you know, DSA candidates. But there's this group of people for whom um, disillusionment with the Democratic Party and disillusionment with the idea of big government in general is driving them more towards a, you know, small government um, vision. And the thing that I found interesting about Black MAGA is I went into it with all So I thought a lot of people that would be drawn to Black, uh, to MAGA who are Black voters would be people like, you know, Kanye West, as you mentioned, um, people that seem more interested in disrupting democracy than actually moving a pro-Black agenda on the ground. And what I found is there are some folks like that, but there are, um, you know, there are people that are not interested in democracy that are more interested in pushing things like, you know, voter fraud um, narratives and, you know, essentially providing Black face as cover for these kind of like white nationalist talking points. But there's also a group of Black voters for whom this idea of make America great again actually speaks to this time where um, Black people of mixed economic status were living together, were able to afford an economic agenda. I think about Baltimore and this like Black working class that settled into the city, that moved into the middle class through labor jobs and were able to, you know, support their family and, and the decimation that's happened locally in a lot of those ways. And I think that kind of angst around that is leading some people to look towards um, at least local Republican parties as a potential vehicle for rebuilding an economic agenda on the ground. Yeah, there was a voter you talked to named Lisa, who I believe is a small business owner. Um, and you <clears throat> point out that she sort of belies the narrative that, um, uh, you know, she is uh, anti-Black 
because she's mm-hmm. a MAGA supporter, um, given that, you know, there's ample evidence to say that Mr. Trump himself is anti-black. Um, but, mm-hmm. but, but in fact, her motivation, uh, her, her political decision is that Trump's uh, economic agenda was better for black small business. So she was motivated by concern for the black community rather than disdain, to be sure. Yeah, no. And I mean, I think that's that's also the interesting aspect. I mean, I think there are people um, who are really looking at uh, some of the things that Trump, at least in theory, has pushed like opportunity zones, um, you know, reactivating or animating small business ownership on, on the ground. And they're saying that's what they want. They want to see more small black owned businesses thriving in communities. They want to see. Um, you know, more programs that are geared towards supporting independent entrepreneurs. And and I'll say for the record that I do think that Biden has looked at this as a, a as a part of his agenda, particularly with, um, you know, some of the things that the Biden administration passed in August around the um, Inflation Reduction Act and others. And so it'll be interesting to see how some of that comes into mind for people as they go, you know, to to vote next week or as they're voting. But yeah, I mean, I think this idea of Trump as this successful businessman, which could be critiqued and unpacked in a lot of ways. But I think that feels appealing to people for whom the loss of local business is is what they see as part of the economic decimation. Brandy Collins Dexter is my guest. She's the author of Black Skinhead, Reflections on Blackness and Our Political Future. I'm Tom Hall. It's midday. And Brandy, um, there are black skinheads on the other side of the spectrum as well. And mm-hmm. at one point you even identify yourself as a black skinhead. Um you talk about Kanye West and and the economic libertarianism and social conservatism of his. And of course, you wrote this book well before any of the most recent controversies around uh, uh, Kanye West's uh, anti-Semitic remarks. But um, so we'll put those off to the side for this for the moment. But um, when it comes to disillusionment um, uh, and feeling like a political outlier, when you come to, when it comes to defining black voters. Uh, who are only defined by their voting history rather than their ideology. I mean, these are things that can be said of people on the left as well. Yeah, and I actually do want to come back to Kanye a little more because I think, so part of uh, the book fundamentally is about what happens when you lose this idea of home, what happens when you lose space, place, and community, and you lose a sense that how you vote or how you engage with the world has, uh, you know, consequences for other people within your community. And that gets to the heart of why Black people um, have voted 90% for the Democratic Party for so long. It's it's a byproduct of what um, Dr. Michael Dawson calls linked fate. So this idea that Black people as voters were more inclined than other groups historically to vote based on the interests of the community as opposed to interests of self. So people who may be, um, let's say, against abortion or people who may be particularly wealthy Black voters for whom, like, you know, tax loopholes may benefit, they're still more inclined to vote Democrat even if they, um, even if the party does support reproductive justice or does, you know, um, not support those tax loopholes because they believe that Black people broadly will benefit and that's more important than 
how they'll personally benefit. So what happens when we get to a point where Black people start to vote more based on self-interest than community? And that takes us to a figure like Kanye. And I see him as what I call like a late stage Black skinhead. So somebody for whom any idea of like community um, and putting to the side self for the greater good, that's lost. They feel so isolated so um, disenfranchised and so, um, you know, disillusioned with standard party politics that they become disruptive in these ways. And so I I talk about that and I talk about Kanye's relationship with Candace Owens, who is somebody that has also trafficked in anti-Semitism in the past. And so what I'm seeing now feels very unsurprising for me, but I, I, I do see like people feeling that way on the left and looking to third party candidates um, or looking to other options. They just want a bold policy agenda that's actually going to, you know, benefit people and benefit them. And you raise a really interesting question. And I wonder if you've answered it, uh, you know, in the process of writing the book. And that question is, what are the implications when black cultural identity is tethered to one political party? Um, talk about the, the, you know, the linkage between the Democratic Party and the cultural identity of the black community, which is, of course, you know, as your, your research has shown and as your experiences, uh, very, very uh, diverse. Sorry, could you say that one more time? You dropped for a second. Oh, sorry about that. I want to ask you about this question that you raise in your book, what are the implications when black cultural identity Mm -hmm. is tethered to one political party, the Democrats? So talk about that linkage between that cultural piece and the the voting history uh, of, uh, as you say, some 90 percent of the of the block and the Democratic Party. Yeah, I mean, I think so. An aha moment for me as I was writing the book, which may not be surprising to a lot of people necessarily, but you know, one, when we talk about Black in this country, oftentimes we're talking about it in the context of race, culture, and ethnicity, although those are those are different things. Like race is this social construct that was created in the U.S. that's most defined by like census check boxes. You know, culture um, is how we kind of like personally identify within our, our our communities and ethnicity, um, you know, could be something like, you know, let's say Black American or, or Jamaican or any number of places. And so Black culture and, um, you know, sort of Black American ethnicity and identifiers, that's a 20th century creation in a lot of ways. That's like a byproduct of Black owned and controlled media and this ability to build a shared story of who we are, of what we believe in and what we fight for. And it's been a way in which we've moved an economic agenda. And for actually most of the 20th century, that was done in, um, you know, a nonpartisan way. There were, you know, Black conservatives like, um, you know, Milton Webster and others that partnered with A. Philip Randolph, who was a Black socialist, and they organized around um, labor rights, building, you know, um, union, uh, strengthening unions for Black workers, a number of other different issues. And a lot of those battles along ideological lines and kind of like, how do we how do we decide how we're going to vote for power? A lot of that took place through um, Black media, took 
place in Black businesses, in these kind of like enclosed spaces. And that is actually part of the voter, you know, reorganizing in the later part of the 20th century that a lot of people don't necessarily talk about. We talk about the Southern strategy. We talk about all of these different ways in which um, Black people, Dr. Leah wright Rigger, John Hopkins talks a lot about, um, you know, Black Republicans realizing that the party didn't feel like the Republican Party was working for them anymore and then moving into the Democratic Party. And that both came through organizing and this idea that we could push an agenda through the Democratic Party. But one of the things that we've seen, or a few different things that we've seen is one, as, as you talked about at the top of the hour, if one party feels like your vote doesn't matter, they're not going to try to negotiate for your vote. They're going to spend that time suppressing your vote. And that's a lot of what we've seen from the Republican Party. And I think on the side of the Democratic Party, there's sometimes almost this like, well, where else are you going to go? And and when you don't necessarily show up to turn up for a candidate that you don't necessarily believe in, we see a lot of pathologizing, a lot of finger wagging at black voters that we didn't do our job. We didn't turn up and vote for whomever. And so I think this idea, again, of having our fates um, be strictly in the hands of like one party and not thinking about how do we negotiate more broadly with this eye towards what black people need at scale is that really serving us at this point and you know i i come to the realization that i'm not sure it does i don't know what we do when the republican party in a lot of ways does continue to do all of these things to suppress and disenfranchise black voters but i i do think we have to like think about this more broadly than I think we have in the past. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Uh, I think that analysis is, is spot on. And when it comes to Democrats, every couple of years or maybe even every four years, uh, we hear uh, lectures from various people about how we can't take the black vote for granted. And then 24 hours later, as you say, there's finger wagging. Oh, you didn't show up. You know, you didn't. Uh, and and it, there's this dichotomy. And then, and then, you know, what the Republicans have done, particularly in these last, uh, you know, few Trump years, um, given the legislation that they have put through and, and given the, you know, the, the, the coordinated effort to um, the, to just make it harder for people of color to cast a ballot uh, under any circumstances. It's really fascinating. This is great stuff in this book, and we're going to take a quick break, and we're going to talk more about it with Brandy Collins Dexter. The book is called Black Skinhead, Reflections on Blackness and Our Political Future. You're listening to an archive edition of Midday. Our conversation was pre-recorded, so we can't take any new calls or online comments today. I'm Tom Hall. Stay with us. I'm Al Waller. I'm Katherine Collinson. And I'm Mahela Vince. In upcoming episodes of Clear Path, Your Roadmap for Life, We'll discuss ways to catch up on retirement savings and the importance of self-care. Tune in to WYPR's website and mobile app, all major podcast platforms, and transamericainstitute.org. And welcome back to this archive edition of Midday. I'm Tom Hall. If you've just joined us, we're listening to a conversation I had with Brandy Collins Dexter about her provocative book, Black Skinhead, Reflections on Blackness and Our Political Future. 
Brandy Collins Dexter is an associate director of research at the Technology and Social Change Project, housed at the Harvard Kennedy School of Government's Shorenstein Center on Media, Politics, and Public Policy. She is the former senior campaign director of the social justice organization Color of Change. Our show was pre-recorded, so we aren't able to take any new calls or online comments today. So, Brandy, I do want to talk about media, both black and white media, um, because you write a lot about it in these essays. Um, you say at one point that the media is responsible for not telling a complete black story and that it plays the biggest role in creating barriers to advancement and community revitalization. What part of the story is mainstream media, white-dominated media, missing? Ooh. Where, I mean, in 25 words or less. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, I think, I, one, I think there's, the, again, the story of um, black voters and you know, why black, particularly younger black voters, may not choose to show up for candidates. And it's this assumption of, you know, laziness or that they don't care about politics and, and they don't care about, um, you know, these elections and the stakes of them. And, and what I found in talking to a lot of people is they, in fact, do, but they often have trouble seeing the distinction between, you know, different candidates and what they can offer to communities. And I, I think the other thing that is often gotten wrong is this um, presumed kind of criminality of Black people and a lot of stories, particularly told about younger Black people in urban environments that really lean into this idea that it justifies over-policing, that justifies racialized austerity politics and, and, and divestment from communities because of the idea that, you know, Black people are harmful in all of these different ways. And I think no place do we see that more in, in more clear terms than, than what we've seen with media reporting in Baltimore and on Baltimore. And uh, give me an example. I, I don't disagree necessarily at all. And, and we've got some black media, uh, black owned media, yes. uh, you know, beginning to, uh, you know, have something of a renaissance here. We've got the Baltimore Beat, Lisa Snowden's uh, yes. publication. Of course, the Afro has been around for more than 100 years. But but talk about uh, Baltimore media and how how the story is, is distorted or ignored. Yeah. So, I mean, I think one immediate example comes up to me is um, the production of Lady in the Lake, which um, I believe just wrapped last week. And so that's the, you know, Laura Lipman novel that's getting, um, or book, sorry, not novel, that's getting turned into an Apple TV show. And they were filming in Baltimore City by Lexington Market. And, uh, you know, one day about a couple months ago, production shut down early. And what was reported was that the reason why it was shut down is because there was a drug dealer that had to come and uh, threatened people on set. There were all of these wild narratives that um, he, he, they were wielding a gun, that $50,000 was being extorted. At one point, when you look on you know, apps like Nextdoor and others, it's like this pack of wild youth. And you see even in, you know, um, police department, like Facebook threads, this is why we need more policing. Baltimore is not safe. Everybody needs to leave. And then 
we find out by the end of the weekend that actually what had happened was that there was a local black uh, business vendor who was asking for payment because other people on the block were being paid to have, um, you know, the set shut down for money lost from like shutting down their businesses on set and that he was disgruntled and got into an argument with one person on the set. No one else was there, um, but there wasn't any gun there wasn't like a fifty thousand dollar extortion attempt it wasn't like this pack of wild youth um all of that was like these narratives that kind of took off and were pushed by certain members of the local press and also debunked by like members of the local press so that that's an important piece to that too but that's some of what i'm talking about yeah because it was debunked because the the reporting came from a member of the crew the, the production crew, um, yes. they, they were they were quoting that person. So the police and it was validated by the police as well. Yeah, yeah, but but the police didn't report it. I mean, they, the the police didn't say this is what happened. In fact, the police investigated and found that that didn't happen. Um, you know, so it, it, I think there's there's a complexity there. But you're absolutely right well, that people so- you know jumped on it, and all of a sudden it became you know uh, gospel, and people started repeating it. Yeah. So, I mean, it was initially reported by the Baltimore Banner. And I will say the Baltimore Sun didn't um, necessarily initially report it. There were questions being raised immediately, even by uh, Laura Lipman, David Simon, by David Simon, Laura Lipman's husband on social media about the truth of the story. But there was some initial reporting from the police um, that used the frame a drug dealer. And then later on, they were like, actually, I think it was like less than 24 hours or something later, actually, we're investigating this. Mm-hmm. And then the police did come back and change change that story. But what we saw in, through different outlets, like across the country and nationally, in outlets like Variety, like particularly a lot of cultural um, media papers, because Natalie Portman was a big name affiliated with the project, is that the lie spread way oh, yeah. further. They all than picked the it up. And right. that's the biggest problem. Yeah. And you make the point, which I think is really interesting. Um, there's research that shows that 80% of black adults said that they do expect national news stories to be accurate. Yes. So so what happens is, and the, the point you make in the book, is that there are black people absorbing the damaging stories told about black people. It's not just white people hearing those yeah. stories. Um, it gets uh, internalized. Uh, and I, I've certainly talked to a lot of people about the damage that that can happen. And that's one of the reasons that black media is so important. Um, you made a really interesting uh, analysis of The Breakfast Club, which is uh, hosted by uh, Charlemagne the God and a couple of other folks, um, and the fact that the reader, the black leadership readership of the New York Times is four percent, but mm-hmm. you know the 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 number of young black millennials and Gen Xers who are on social media it's higher than any other ethnic group. So people in the black community are getting the news and getting their information from different sources. Talk about the significance of black media and shows like The Breakfast Club, for example. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, one of the things that's interesting about The Breakfast Club, and and it's got a lot of, you know, things that we could critique about it, but they brought on people from a number of different ideologies, um, Black Republicans, Black leftists, liberals, etc., to really talk about issues and how you know, the implications for black people. They've brought on 
um, politicians ranging from you know Hillary Clinton to to VP Harris and and others, and I think that setting in which those folks, um, even you know then candidate uh, now President Biden, can be interrogated on how are some of the policies that you're pushing actually benefiting black people benefiting younger black people those spaces are really critical for voter literacy and for us to be able to make informed decisions um and as you point out i think local media and what's happening with the baltimore beat and with other newspapers that ability to hold you know uh, not just like candidates across the aisle accountable, but you know candidates that we elected, like Mayor Scott, accountable in a number of ways. I think is really important. But the other thing that I want to add to this is that I'm talking about this specifically and the the important stakes for Black people. Um, but I think we all benefit. I think all of our communities benefit from locally owned and controlled media, and we see clear distinctions when um, you know national. Um, media outlets are the ones that shape our environment, how we understand the news, decide who we hear from and who we don't. And so I think this um, this message around preserving, you know, local and community owned media is universal, not just for black people. Yeah. And, and it's also, I think, uh, really important on the national scale. You make the point that BET um, was sold to Viacom 22 years ago. I mean, uh, you know, a long time ago, and and that it changed substantially after this white media company took ownership of it. Um, they saw it as a financial opportunity, and they're 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 not shy about making money with BET. Mm-hmm. But they're you know, it, it's a different uh, operation than it was when it was controlled by African Americans. Um, and that's just, I think, it it works both on the national and the local level. Um, but, but the work that you've done um, in media justice, um, the, it, it is, you mentioned that it's, it's not just a fight for rights, but it's also about access and representation. And it's mm-hmm. uh, rooted in belief. You, you write that it's, this is rooted in belief that media is where the invisible war is constantly waged on black lives and spirits and bodies. So it's not just a matter of necessarily representation and ignoring it's um it's a hostile representation yeah i mean a hundred percent i think well one it starts from this place of this idea that media is something that ever could be neutral or is that supposed to be operating from this like neutral standpoint um and, and what we've seen is like historically and now is that, first of all, media is ripe with all sorts of bias that we all bring, like, uh, you know, our personal beliefs uh, to the forefront. And, and that can sometimes manifest in how things are discussed, who gets moved into, into the picture when we're telling a story of what's happening in our community, who gets moved out of the picture when we tell the story about what's happening um, within our community. And so that ability to frame our own fights is what allows us to talk about, you know, what we mean, for example, when we talk about, you know, local police accountability, 
Um, that's another thing. I think that questions on our election locally around whether or not the police department should be kind of returned to, you know, Baltimore City and the history of of how it's it's not been, um, you know, run by Baltimore City. What does that mean? What kind of discussions can can we have that are possible now if Baltimore City does have control over its own police department? Um, stories about, you know, what happens when um we don't have clean water in certain parts of the city and why we don't have clean water and you know why a solution is not necessarily that um you know everybody gets like you know kind of equal stakes in in getting you know uh, cuts to their water bill but that we actually deal with the infrastructure issues that are happening in particular communities that lead to unsafe water in particular communities like that ability to tell the story of what's really happening through media vehicles that gets compromised when we aren't the ones that are able to tell our own stories yeah i mean uh, as you look back to the the e coli uh, scare uh, a few weeks ago uh, it wasn't citywide. It was on the west side, right. Harlem Park exactly. and Sandtown, you know, and they're the ones who were without water longer than anybody else. Um, the book is called Black Skinhead, Reflections on Blackness and Our Political Future. The author is my guest, Brandy Collins Dexter. Uh, before we go to a quick quick break, let's uh, have you respond to a comment from a listener, Donald, who says, I have eight brothers Two are conservative and vote Republican, and it's noted by the other siblings that these two brothers served in the Army in recent years, including tours overseas. So I wonder, uh, he's, the listener is wondering if you, you looked into the uh, influence of military service uh, on uh, people in the black community leaning right. You talk about religion, uh, but what about uh, the the impact or the importance of military affiliation. Oh, I mean that's a <laughs> that's a huge part of it. I, I actually love that question because even in, within my family, like I close with the story of my brother who uh, was in military service. I have people that in my family that have fought. I think in every war, um, going back to the Revolutionary War in this country, and there is this idea. There's like national this idea of nationalism. And, um, you know, Americanism that can, for some folks, um, lead them to more conservative politics. And and when we look um, this year in uh, 2022, we had a historic number of black Republicans running for office. Um, I think something like 100 that were running for Congress, something like 30 made it make made it to the ballot in November and a disproportionate number of them. I, I can't remember the exact percentage, but a huge number of them were actually uh, military veterans. And so there, there's a hundred percent that, you know, di- direct connection there. And, and I think even within our homes, when we have certain conversations, uh, that military service and, and that idea of who we are as Americans and nationalism, it, it, there's a huge link for sure. Yeah, and uh, folks should know that uh, not only is this a you know assiduously researched book, but also uh, you do make it a very personal memoir. You talk so lovingly about your mother, your father, uh, and at the end of the book, as you mentioned, uh, you talk about your brother Kenny, with whom you had been estranged uh, and have uh, you know since uh, become not estranged. And that was uh, really nice to read. The author and activist Brandy Collins Dexter. Her new book is Black Skinhead: Reflections on Blackness and our political future. We'll have more with Brandy Collins Dexter when we return from a quick break. It's midday. I'm Tom Hall. Stay with us.
Welcome back to this archive edition of Midday. I'm Tom Hall. If you've just joined us, we're listening to a conversation I had a few days before the November election with Brandy Collins-Dexter. She's the former senior campaign director at Color of Change, an online social justice organization with more than 7 million members. She's a visiting fellow and director of research at the Technology and Social Change Project, housed at the Harvard Kennedy School of Government's Shorenstein Center on Media, Politics, and Public Policy. That's at the Kennedy School of Government at Harvard University. We're talking about her book, which is part personal memoir and part wake-up call to the Democratic Party and the political left about the disengagement from the party by black voters. It's called Black Skinhead, Reflections on Blackness and Our Political Future. Our conversation was pre-recorded, so we're not taking any new calls or online comments today. So, Brandy, I want to ask you about the uh, the types of black voters that you um, uh, identify. You, you say to imagine that we're in a cafeteria and we see all these different uh, tables full of folks. I wonder if you could run through uh, quickly, you know, the, the, the kinds of divisions you see within that voting block of black voters. Then we'll try to grab some calls. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it goes back to the earlier caller's question. You, for a long time, black people have had all of these different dimensions to um, a black political ideology. And uh, again, Dr. Michael Dawson talks about this in his book, Black Visions. Um, And I I kind of went into it and I saw these different breakdowns and I was like, is this still true? And kind of started testing that through the research. But you do see um, what's called like, for example, a black feminist ideology and then how that manifests in, uh, you know, sort of political behavior. And and for that, I I actually interview um, a black sex worker who talks a lot about um, her work around, uh, you know, politics and um, online censorship and and a number of different things that she's fighting through this black feminist lens. You have, you know, black Marxism, um, you know, kind of also like disillusioned um, liberalism is another category. Um, People who I, I kind of put myself in this category, people who have voted uh, with the Democratic Party on the whole, but have certainly um, some critiques of the party and would like to see, you know, more um, leftist policies at play. We have, you know, your black, conser- your traditional black conservatives uh, that are, you know, pro a uh, small business come through this uh, traditional um, Christian lens of family values. And so, yeah, there's like a whole hodgepodge. I I know I'm leaving like a couple of out, but I I, I talk about imagine that we all bring our our identity lenses and we sit and we talk about an agenda in a way that doesn't necessarily force us into a confine of a certain type of voting behavior, but that we're able to um, vote for community interests, but also vote for, you know, candidates and for policies that we actually support and believe in and, and what would that look like. Yeah. And I think that these, these uh, you know, categories are helpful. Uh, another one is racial egalitarians. You talk yes. about black nationalists. And I think it is helpful to to think about, you know, the spectrum of, of folks that are in uh, in in the movement and in in the black community, and you also mentioned that um, uh, the the MAGA uh, the black MAGA voters that you uh, talked to were not interested in engaging with black liberals, um, and and I would assume that it's uh, vice versa uh, also true that liberals are not so interested in in engaging with black 
conservatives. I mean, you mentioned Webster and Randolph back in the in the sixties civil mm-hmm. rights movement. You know, getting together a conservative and a socialist getting together. Um, but do you see any of that, or the possibility of any of that happening uh, in this time? I mean, I think if there's anything this current time has <laughs> told me is that anything is is possible, I suppose. So yeah. I, I hate to say never, but I, I think that that goes back to this idea of the loss of space and place. So- and we may have lost Brandy Collins Dexter, who's on Zoom, and we are going to try to get uh, her connection back. It sounds like uh, the Internet might have gone. If you have just joined us, we're talking about Brandy Collins Dexter's new book, Black Skinhead, Reflections on Blackness and Our Political Future. Brandy uh, is the former senior campaign director at Color of Change. It's a huge online social justice organization. It boasts more than 7 million members. She's currently a visiting fellow at the Shorenstein Center on Media, Politics, and Public Policy at the Kennedy School of Government at Harvard University. She's attending a conference in Dublin, Ireland, and uh, I think we've gotten her back on Zoom. Uh, Brandy, can you hear me? Yes, I'm so sorry about that. Well, stuff happens. Um, let's go to the phones. Uh, to Kenzie, who is on the line in Baltimore. Welcome to Midday with Brandy Collins Dexter. Hey, thanks for taking my call. Um, I want to comment or and hear some some thoughts on how media's tendency to use black people, especially young black men, as the boogeyman leads to criminalization of things that are completely normal. When uh, I, I grew up in a white neighborhood, um, white kids got to do things that when, if black kids did it, would become criminalized. And when I see it, so when I see a squeegee kid, I see a young man in the city with few jobs who decided rather than sell drugs on, on, the, on the corner, I'm going to take up a squeegee and offer a service that people may or may not want for a third of what I could make standing on a corner for 20 minutes. But media has turned that into, oh, I feel, you know, these, these kids are criminal. They're, they're harassing us. I wonder, how long are you at this light? that a kid can harass you, they've got to get to the next car if you say no. So what people are claiming is not really happening. What's really happening is that you've got some white people who are afraid of black people and are afraid of the idea of a black person coming up to their car. So instead of media dealing with what's really happening, they put they spread a narrative that criminalizes those children. Um, same thing, you know, saggy pants, you know, we criminalized, tried to criminalize sagging pants, rather where we didn't try to criminalize mohawks. Media manipulates us into believing a situation exists with blackness that, re- that creates criminality, where criminality doesn't have to exist. Yeah, well, uh, again, Kenzie, my take on it is that I think all of what you say is true, and I also think it is true in some instances that there are people who are intimidated and harassed and, uh, uh, you know, uh, not only made uncomfortable, but in some cases uh, robbed and, and, and uh, you know, assaulted to a certain extent by some of the squeegee kids. It's, it, and, and it's not all of them, to be sure, and it's, but, but all of it can be true at the same time. Um, uh, and it's not that it's equally true, but uh, certainly it, it's possible to be concurrently true. Uh, Brandy Collins-Dexter, uh, what's your, your take on Kenzie's uh, comment. 
Well, thank you, Kinsey, for your comment. I want to go back to the other point and then come back to this. So I think to your question of can we negotiate within, uh, you know, for a broader agenda, I think we used to do that in a lot of spaces like Black businesses, Black churches, um, Black media. And uh, in the 2008 recession, we lost 60% of Black wealth, which was a lot of those kind of spaces, and we're losing more. So that ability to negotiate off the internet and away from algorithmic segregation, I think is is like, or our inability to do that is part of what's hindering us. I, and to Kenzie's point, like to me, so so one, I have an essay in, in my book where I talk specifically about local news and Chicago local news and how they tell this story of this young black man uh, or, or it's a black boy he's actually he's a kid four he's years like, old he's yeah. four years old <laughs> right. and he talks about they they interview him which the question is why after the shooting that takes place in the neighborhood and he says you know they they ask him if he's afraid and he's like no i'm gonna i'm gonna get me a gun and they kind of cut that off and then the newscasters talk about oh these like this is a shame. Like, look at this kid that's picking up this gun. And then we see the unedited footage. And he actually says, I'm going to get me a gun because I'm going to be a police officer. So the idea is that he wants to grow up to protect his community, but that part of the story is lost. And so I think this is the question. It's like, it's not, you know, to your point, when, when something happens, how much are these like incidences amplified more than kind of like, the everyday realities. It, it, how does that give us a false sense of how much danger is looming? Who presents the dangers? How are stories used to justify, um, you know, over policing to justify loss of resources for economic opportunities for these kids so they don't have to necessarily be squeegee kids? Like the, it's kind of like those aspects of our humanity that sometimes get you know stripped away for these. If it bleeds, it leads sound bites on local news sources and national news sources. Yeah, and I, Kenzie, I very much appreciate your perspective. And 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 you know, uh, the the incident that uh, Brandy writes about in her book is a perfect example of that. There's just no excuse for the television station in Chicago to edit that tape in that way. Let's see if we can get another call in from Ken, who's on the line in Baltimore, also with a comment about the media. Welcome to the show. Hi, this is Ken from Baltimore. Hi, you're on the air, sir. What's uh, on your mind? Yeah, I wanted to ask the, the the writer about her opinions of why you see we continue to see more and more millennials, especially black millennials, continue to go online for their news instead of the mainstream media. And what is her opinion on people like Tariq Nasheed and the new black media online who continues to say that black people should only be voting for an agenda? a black-specific agenda. All right, thanks for that comment. Brandy, what do you think? You write about uh, the use of social media and, and the Internet by black millennials and Gen Xers in particular. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of people are going online to find community because they can't find that as much offline in a number of ways. I think there's a danger in us being strictly an online society for a number of reasons. One, you don't necessarily know the people that you're talking to and if they say who they say they are, um, you can lose a lot of information. And also because of the way that which the Internet is constructed, it keeps us in these kind of like digital boxes in a way that doesn't allow us to really, you know, work with each other in meaningful ways. And and, and so I, I do think we need to think about some more 
uh, how do we both create more offline interventions, but how do we hold tech uh, companies accountable for the way in which they're manipulating our online experience and spaces? As far as folks like Tariq Nasheed, I mean, I think, you know, to be clear that he is somebody who has um, pushed, you know, a false information at times, um, particularly in the early days of, of COVID. Um, I think that what we need more of is an ability to um, filter through what information is accurate, uh, what information is not accurate. Um, and also like, how do we get away from a uh, kind of uh, platforming or amplifying these more like, I don't know, histrionic sound bites in a way that like actually redirects us away from a true conversation about a black political agenda. I think that would be, you know, my response. I'd love to talk more about that, but I know we're up against the time. So we are up against time. That is all the time we have, but I'd love to have you back on uh, because you're local, you're close. Uh, we'd love to yes. have you uh, come on in and, and continue this discussion and talk about a whole range of things. I think it'll be very interesting to see uh, the standing that uh, Ye uh, has or loses uh, as, as we move forward, given his uh, recent behavior. But this book asks all sorts of terrific questions uh, and, uh, you know, gives us all a lot to think about. So congratulations and thanks very much. Yeah, thank you again for having me on. Brandy Collins-Dexter. The book is called Black Skinhead, Reflections on Blackness and Our Political Future. This has been an archive edition of Midday. You can listen to Midday on the radio or on demand. I hope you'll subscribe to our podcast wherever you get your podcasts to catch up on any shows you might have missed. Thanks for joining us for Midday today and every day. Take care.